All right, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn it to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, that's in the Old Testament. Last week we started a new series called Speaking of Jesus. And throughout this series we're going to be looking at ways in which we can talk about Jesus to the people around us. We started this, introduced this series last week by looking at why words are important. We found that actions are really important because they allow us to earn our right to be heard, but the words also have to come in. Once we've earned the right to be heard, once our actions show the love of God to those around us, it's at that moment that our words are so important. And we need to be able to speak boldly about the love of God and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Today, I want us to look at the attitude of our hearts when we talk about Jesus. Frankly, the attitude of our hearts, period, but especially when we talk about Jesus. And we're going to be looking at the heart of humility. To do that, we're going to be kind of journeying through a scripture passage as an example of how we sometimes might talk about Jesus, how we might share good news in a context that there isn't a whole lot of good news. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to be starting at 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24, and we'll be moving into chapter 7 with that. This is what it says. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army, and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. Samaria was the capital of Israel, which was the northern kingdom. There was a great famine in the city, and the siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods, or some translations talk about instead dove's dung, which I frankly like that image better. The dung of doves could sell for five shekels. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, Help me, my lord the king. The king replied, If the lord does not help you, where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? Then he asked her, What's the matter? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give up your son so that we may eat him today, and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, Give up your son so we may eat him. But she had hidden him. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes. And as he went along the wall, the people looked, and they saw that under his robes he had sackcloth on his body. And he said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was the prophet of God. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a messenger ahead. But before he arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Don't you see how this murderer is sending someone to cut off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold it shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's footsteps behind him? While he was still talking to them, the messenger came down to them. And the king said, 
This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And Elijah replied, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a sea of the finest flour will sell for just a shekel, and two seas of barley will sell for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And the officer, whose, heart, whose arm the king was leaning against, said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, how could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha, but you will not eat any of it. I appreciate the moans and the gasps of that story, because that is a horrible horrible story. Sometimes when we, read, when we read through the Bible, we think, how is this in my nice little Bible? But the fact is, this is reality. And when we see here that there was a siege around the city of Samaria, obviously that siege would have caused a famine within the city walls, and people were starving. They were starving to death. It was such a horrific spot. The king had no provisions for people. And people were dying of starvation. In fact, there were people resorting to cannibalism, as we hear. And this, this little illustration of a mother killing her child and eating him is just beyond what we can think of. Now, in our context, we don't have people starving to death. We do have poverty in our context. Certainly within our world, we do have people who are physically starving to death. But in our context, in North America, in the concurrent area, physical starvation is not the threat. And yet, I would suggest to you that people are still hungry inside for something. The problem is not physical starvation. The problem is hopelessness. There is a void inside of ourselves. We can see this through the commercials that are on TV because the media likes to exploit whatever is going on inside of us. And so when you look at those commercials, they tell you that if only you had the newest jeans or the nicer car or the best juicer, your life would be satisfied. That hole inside of you would be filled. We look at the TV shows and the movies, and they tell us that if only we had a better job or better behaved kids or the more attractive spouse or we could travel more, then we would be satisfied. You see, the media is trying to help us to satisfy the hunger within us in all the wrong ways. And often we do. We try to satisfy the hunger within us in destructive ways. Why else do people gossip and slander? Why do people get into rage and try to grasp for control and try to manipulate situations? Why is lust such a big issue in pornography and affairs? Why do people live for money trying to accumulate stuff that we don't need to try to impress people that we don't like? Sometimes we try to make our lives so full of things because we got to try everything to try to see if this next thing might fit the hole within us. Now, sometimes people take a different strategy and they say, well, I'm going to become so busy that I will become numb to the hunger in my life. 
And that's, that's a really good strategy that lots of people try to do these days. Is they say, well, if, I, if my life is just so busy, then I won't notice that there's actually an emptiness in there that I'm trying to fill. Did you know that people who work in horribly impoverished places of the world, where there are people who are starving, that these humanitarian workers will often find that people who have gone without food for such a long time are no longer hungry. And you can go up to someone, you can give them food, and they'll look at it and say, I don't want this. Now there's a trick. If you can somehow get them to try it, to put it in their mouth and swallow it, then something kind of reboots, something reclicks in their mind, and they realize that that is actually a need. But isn't it horrible that there are people who would say, this thing that will give me life, I don't think I need that. The same is true in our spiritual hunger. Unfortunately, we have forsaken the things that that bring true life. And the prophet Jeremiah knew this. God said to Jeremiah, this is the problem with people. And it's still a problem today as it was 3,000 years ago. This is what he says. My people have committed two sins. Number one, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water. People have forgotten that there is actually someone who can satisfy that inner hunger. That's God. Because we were meant to be in a relationship with God. We were meant, we were made to be in a relationship with God. And so when that relationship was severed because of our sin, then we become hungry to fill that void. So, We've forsaken God, the spring of living water. And the second thing is we've dug our own cisterns. We've looked for ways to satisfy. But they're broken cisterns. They don't hold water. Isn't that what's happening in our culture today? People are looking for anything that will satisfy. But it's all the things that we've made up. And they don't satisfy. And sometimes they even hurt. Now just just so that We're really clear here. None of us can get on a high horse and say, man, the world is just so horrible. We're so good in here, the world's just so horrible. Because the fact is, we were all like this as well. Each and every one of us has tried to satisfy that God-shaped hole in ourselves with something else. And if I can be really honest, many of us still do. We have experienced the spring of living water in our lives. We've experienced God and we know that he's the one who truly satisfies. And yet we are still tempted. I'm still tempted to go off and say, but I wonder if this other thing might satisfy me too. But I wonder if more stuff or other people or that juicer might satisfy and I'm guessing that I'm not the only one here. And just like the king, cultures often looks to someone to blame, right? The king blamed Elisha because he knew that this disaster was from God and Elisha had been prophesying that the people had been destructive and so God was just going to destroy them. And you know what? We and our culture often look for someone to blame as well. And often we blame those who actually have hope. We blame those who say to us, but there is hope. There is something that can satisfy. 
if you just open yourself to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, you will experience hope. Let's continue on in the story here. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of of the city gate. Remember, the city is in famine. There are these four men, outcasts of the city. They have leprosy. They're not even allowed in the city. They're sitting at the city gate, begging, and they realize nobody's giving us anything because nobody has anything to give us. And they say to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. Not good options. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we will live. If they kill us, then we'll die. Sounds like a good plan, right? Like, I'm going to die anyway. There's like 3% chance that if I go there, maybe they'll make us slaves and we'll live another day. So at dusk they got up and they went to the camp of the Arameans. And when they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. And so they got up and they fled in the dusk and abandoned their their tents and their horses and their donkeys. And they left the camp as it was and they ran for their lives. Just side point here. God can do anything. God can do anything. So the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp. They entered one of the tents and they ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and clothes and they went off and they hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. So, lepers realize that their situation is kind of hopeless. They're either going to die at the city gates or die at the enemy camp. And so, they take their chances, they roll the dice, and they say slavery is better than death. And yet, what they find at the Aramean camp is better than they could ever have dreamed. Instead of death or slavery, at the hands of their enemies, the lepers find banquet tables of food, drink, expensive clothes, and precious metals. In one instant, they went from starving to having more food than they could eat. They went from impoverished to wealthy. And the first thing they did is hide and hoard. The first thing they did, they ate and they drank, and then they hoarded away treasures for themselves. Their reaction was one of self-preservation. And most of us can say, yeah, you know what, if I'm really honest with myself, I might have a tendency to do that as well. If I was in their shoes, and death was all around me, and I find something amazing, maybe I think, who's going to take this from me? Unfortunately, there are many of us here today who do the same thing with the gospel. We were in spiritual starvation, And someone told us where to find what could really satisfy. I'm sure you can even think right now about the person who told you that Jesus could give you hope. Maybe there were a few people. 
And so we put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, and we found in him forgiveness for our sins, love and grace that we did not deserve but has been lavished on us, and a hope that he will never leave us or forsake us. And this is amazing. This is the gospel. But then we take the gospel, this treasure that we found, and we keep it to ourselves. We think, now I have Jesus in my life, I am good. I'm satisfied. I don't need anything. Other people can fend for themselves. What I have can stay with me. The problem with this, well, there's many problems with this, but the biggest problem is that we forget the beauty of the gospel. We forget the beauty of the gospel, and the beauty of the gospel is this. We have done nothing to earn or deserve the forgiveness, love, and grace that we find in Jesus. Say that with me. We have done nothing to earn or deserve the forgiveness, love, and grace that we find in Jesus. Nothing. These lepers did nothing to earn or deserve the amazing treasure of life that they found. They did nothing It wasn't like they were the best people in Samaria. It wasn't like they were the most deserving. It wasn't like they were the most holy. It wasn't that they were anything other than beggars. And yet, God uses them to find out his grace. We've done nothing. The Apostle Paul reminds us this when he says in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. We have done nothing to earn or deserve God's love. In no way are we better than those who have not found Jesus. We are beggars telling other beggars where to find food. That's who we are. And that is the attitude that we should find ourselves in. We are beggars telling other beggars where to find food. Last part of this story that we'll look at today Finally, the lepers, they say to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news. This is a day of a gospel. And we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. So let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. The rest of the story goes like this. They end up going back. And just like we would expect, the king doesn't actually believe them. And that's one of the things that that we'll find when we tell people about Jesus. There are going to be people who say, yeah, that sounds too good to be true. You say that there's joy, there's a hope there. It sounds like you're telling me something that maybe is too good to be true. You say that that God wants to forgive me, but, but you don't even know what I've done. How could God forgive me? That sounds too good to be true. And people will say, I don't believe it. And so what the king does, he sends people out to check it out because he thinks it's going to be a trap. And they finally realize it's not a trap. The Arameans are halfway home. And the prophecy that Elisha said does come true is that the economy in Samaria flips and a sea of flour is sold for just one shekel. The beautiful thing for us is that When we understand the gospel, the spiritual economy flips. 
And those who had fear now have faith. And those who were hopeless now have hope. And those who were in despair now have joy. And those who were feeling condemned now are forgiven. It is a beautiful thing, this gospel that we have. But what I want to encourage you with today is that when we share the gospel, and we should, we should use our words and share the gospel, but when we do that, we need to come with humble hearts. Because we are no better than the people that we are telling people about Jesus. We're no better than them. We're just beggars who are telling other beggars where to find food. And we need to know that we haven't earned or deserved this. Imagine if these lepers had gone back to the city and said, Hey guys, guess what? We know where you can get food because we're so awesome, we scared away the Arameans. Yeah, right. Imagine that these lepers took credit for what God had done. How ridiculous is that? We can't take any credit for what God has done in our lives. None whatsoever. We are thankful. We should be thankful. I'm thankful for what God has done in my life. But I know that it's nothing that I've done to earn or deserve it. And when I talk to someone about who Jesus is, there's nothing that they could do to earn or deserve it either. But that God loves them like crazy. I want to end with just two short tangents here. Because there's a bit of a balance here, right? Please hear me. We do nothing to earn or deserve God's love and grace, and so we need to have humility. There's a false humility as well, where we go, oh, woe is me. And it would be like the leopards who would go back after seeing this beautiful treasure, beautiful gift that God has done, go back and start begging again. And say, well, you know, but, but I'm nothing, I'm nobody. Well, you're, you're nothing, you're nobody, but God has loved you and has showered his love on you, and so you now have hope and faith. And that's the same thing. My daughter, I can't even remember where we were going. My daughter turned to me and said, Dad, how do you become a saint? <laughs> Big question, eh? She goes to a Catholic school, and so it's called St. Anthony. She hears about saints a lot. And I said, well, tell you what. You may hear about how some people in the Catholic Church become saints. And that, that happens where they do miracles in their lives, and then they die, and somebody says, hey, this person should be a saint. That's not the full thing. but And so specific people become saints. And I said, but Liberty, I need to tell you something. In the Bible, it calls all of us saints. When we come to know Jesus Christ, we become saints. She pondered that for a second and was like, so when you know Jesus, you become a saint? I'm like, yeah. So I'm Saint Liberty. (laughs) And I said, yeah, yeah, you are. Don't go telling your classmates that, but yeah, yeah, you are. (laughs) Because here's the beautiful thing. We do absolutely nothing to earn or deserve God's love. And yet he freely, lavishly gives it to us. And we become his children when we accept his love. We become his children. And as the children of God, we're not beggars anymore. And as the children of God, we're humble in knowing that we don't deserve to be called his children. But he freely gives us that right. We don't deserve his grace, but he freely lavishes it on us. And we are thankful for that.
And so, in this humility, we need to know where we stand with God. That we are his children, that we are loved by him, and that we can boldly proclaim that God is amazing because of who he is and what he's doing in our lives. And I haven't earned or deserved that at all. But it's given to me. And so when we go out and we tell people about Jesus, that is the humility that we need to go out in. Second tangent. Over the course of this week, I've, I've talked to a lot of different people about A theme kind of came up in a few different conversations, and the theme was this. I want to tell people about Jesus, and I know that my actions are supposed to show them who Jesus is, but I have trouble, because if I'm trying to live my life for Christ, if I'm trying to live my life for Christ, I think that I need to be all polished and good, and people need to look at me and say, wow, your life is amazing, Like, you don't sin, you don't do anything wrong, you're amazing. And I know that's not true in my life, and so if that's what they see in my life, and I fall flat flat on my face, then they're going to say, oh man, you're such a hypocrite. Man, like, how do you know God? Isn't God supposed to make your life so much better, and yet you you don't look a whole lot different than I do? This is where where humility comes in, because I think this is absolutely key. As Christians... We are saved by grace. We know the grace and love of God. That is the foundation that we stand on. That we've done nothing to earn or deserve God's love, but he freely, completely gives us his grace and forgiveness and love. And as we live in that, as we walk in that as Christians, we need to remember constantly that we've done nothing to earn or deserve his love. And so when we talk to people, in our lives, as we live with people and as we rub up against each other, we need to model that grace and that humility. We need to model that grace and humility in our lives by saying, hey, you know what? I'm not perfect. When we mess up in front of a non-Christian or a Christian, let's just say when we mess up, period, and we will, Some of us will mess up before we're out of the parking lot here today. When we mess up, and we will, we need to show the grace of God by owning up to it, not trying to cover it up, not trying to say, well, yeah, I didn't actually do that. I'm I'm kind of perfect here, or that wasn't a big deal. But to own up and say, hey, you know what? I lost my temper with my kids, or I wasn't fair to my wife, or I kind of did something to my coworker that I shouldn't have done, or whatever, whatever it might be, and admit that, and apologize, and ask for forgiveness. This humility, if you can do this, it flies in the face of our culture. It flies in the face of the culture that we live in. Because our world thinks that Christians are supposed to be perfect, and we know that we're not perfect. God is doing a good work in us, but we're not there yet. We're not complete but we rest and we trust in his grace. And so when I mess up, and I do so constantly, I need to trust in his grace that he forgives me. And I need to be transparent in that with other people as well and say, you know what, I'm not perfect. I'll mess up, I'll, I'll offend you, I'll, I'll sin against you, and I'm sorry. I ask that you would forgive me. And when we do that, It goes right back to those actions 
earning the right for us to speak the truth of God. When we show people that we know that we're not perfect and that we trust in God's grace, then when we tell them about God's grace and God's forgiveness, man, they say, hold on a second. So you're not perfect. You trust in God's grace. I'm not perfect. I trust in God's grace. Maybe this actually might make sense to me. Friends, we need to tell people about Jesus because he is the best thing that has ever happened to us. We need to do it in humility and in love, recognizing that we've done nothing to earn or deserve his love, but that love was freely, lavishly given to us. When we do that, it'll open doors for people to embrace the God of the humble. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love. Thank you that we don't earn or deserve it. Thank you that you give it to us while we were still sinners. Thank you that you came in Jesus when we were still your enemies. Lord, we ask that you would remind us of your love and grace, that you would help us to live each and every day in your grace, not trying to make ourselves right before you, but entirely surrendering our inability to be perfect before you. God, that's not going to be easy. I know that there are, there are lots of us who are prideful. I'm prideful. Again, that's just a flaw. And yet I ask that you would be taking that pride out of us, that you would be chiseling that pride out, that we wouldn't care how people see us as long as they see you through us. That we wouldn't be worried about trying to look perfect, but that we would allow you to reflect your perfection in your grace through us. And Father, I just pray right now that just in this moment of silence, you would put a name or a face in our hearts of someone in our lives that we need to tell about Jesus. Someone that doesn't know you, that we need to start praying for, that we need to start living and speaking into. We just ask right now that you put that person on our heart right now. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.